My name is Eric Bowman. I'm the communications person at the Canadian Psychological Association, and this is Mindful. I worked in classic rock radio for many years before coming here to the Canadian Psychological Association. Now, classic in this case refers to music from a time period, uh, usually about 20 years before the present day. And that's because radio is marketed to people in their 40s, they're the ones who have money, and they have a nostalgic attachment to the music they heard on the radio in their early to mid-teens. That's why so many of us, when we hear one of those songs on now classic rock radio, uh, we feel really old and it makes us angry. So a new study out of Toronto suggests that those songs, the ones that stick with you throughout your life, the ones that keep making their way back onto your playlist, can also predict your relationship attachment style. Now is that because your attachment style is also formed in your early to mid-teens? Or is it a lifelong draw to songs whose lyrics match your relationship approach? We will ask study author Dr. Raven Alai in another mindful episode that's just an excuse for me to talk to someone about music for 35 minutes. So my name is Raven. Um, I am currently a resident physician at Western University. Uh, before my career in medicine, I did my PhD in social psychology at the University of Toronto. I want to talk to you about this recent study that you did that finds that your taste in music, our taste in music, my taste in music can predict my attachment style when it comes to our relationship. So I'm hoping that just to start off with, we can explain what attachment style is uh, so that people can understand, you know, we all approach relationships a little bit differently. So I'm hoping you can explain attachment style uh, as a broad concept. Attachment style is kind of like you're kind of introducing it as it's the way we typically think, feel and behave in relationships. Um, it forms pretty early on, but uh, as time goes on, it can definitely change based on your experiences. And the way to think about it would be four categories, just to make it a little simpler. The first category would be, we could just say anxiously attached. So these are people who need a lot of reassurance from their partners. Uh, they, they are constantly worried uh, that their partners are going to leave them or their partners don't love them as much as they love their partners. Uh, so their emotions can go into overdrive and, and in more kind of lay language, these people might be described as clingy or needy, uh, and that can actually push their partners away eventually. Uh, the second category would be people who are avoidantly attached. Uh, these are people who don't trust uh, the ultimate outcomes of relationships. They think that relationships can ultimately, ultimately be negative uh, or that other people have negative intentions. And so their response to that is to push people away, to maintain their independence, to uh, shut down their emotions uh, and to just try to be by, by themselves kind of in terms of the relationship, not really emotionally opening up to other people. So in lay language, these people might be described as dismissive or cold or emotionally closed off. Another attachment style would be people, people who are mixed between these two. Right. Uh, so while they have anxious kind of feelings and thoughts, uh, they can switch into avoidance. So these people will really want to be close to someone, but once that person gets close, they might switch into an avoidance style, so then they'll push the person away. So it's more of a disorganized or fluctuating kind of attachment style. And then the final one would be secure. So secure are low on everything that I just described. They're low on anxious attachment. They're low on avoidant attachment. Instead, they want to get close to other people. They're open communicators. They trust their partners. They turn to them in times of need. About 40% of our population is secure. This episode is going to run in March. And so for people listening to this right now, it's March, but we're recording this episode 
uh, the beginning of December of 2022, and Spotify keeps trying to tell me that they want to give me my rap for the whole year and tell me all the songs that I've listened to and the things that I like the most. Should they be telling me what my attachment style is based on my uh, top five songs on my playlist, most of which are by the Wu-Tang Clan and the two? Wow. I don't know the second artist or band that you... Who's, who's the two? The Coup. Oh, the coup. Uh, they're a hip-hop group from the States. Uh, we're quite big in the mid-2000s. Uh, very political, uh, you know, tear down the system kind of thing. And uh, I really enjoy them. Very clever lyrics. Uh, good wordplay, you know? Okay, nice. Yeah, I, I find that rap and hip-hop fans uh, like this study most. Uh, if I had to put people in genres, because they really do appreciate the lyrics and the power that lyrics can have. Should Spotify be judging its listeners? I think that there's a very important distinction to be made in terms of what this research uh, is speaking about. We're not speaking about songs that you just happen to enjoy, for example, at the gym or on your drive to work or at a party or anything like that. It's not even songs that you enjoy putting on repeat. It's your favorite songs that have personal meaning to you. So we have to think about that. And Spotify, I think it would be a little noisy uh, in terms of the 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 data, not in terms of the sound, but right. too noisy in terms of you'd be picking up on songs that people just listen to again, like on their way to work or whatever it may be, or it's a song that really pumps them up at the gym. Um, or I don't know, it's a playlist they put on because they had a party going on at their house and they want other people to come over and enjoy the music. I'm talking about the songs that really resonate with you through the years that you turn back to when you're, you know, you need something to validate you or something to emotionally support you. So if you had a playlist like that on Spotify, sure. Um, a lot of people even have playlists called like breakup album or breakup right. playlist, you know, yes. or falling in love or whatever. That's the kind of music that I'm talking about and that this research is is uh, speaking towards. Okay. So in my case, then it would be Merle Haggard and uh, drinking songs that I fell in love with. When I was 13. <laughs> and I'm wondering though, right? Because there is, and I worked in radio for many years, right? And when you end up on classic radio, right? Oldies, classic songs, really you're appealing to people who fell in love with that music between the ages of like 12 and 17 or something in there, right? I mean, that ends up being the core for most of us of when we developed our taste in music. Does that mean that that's also the time at which we developed an attachment style in relationships and therefore the two mirror each other, you know, is, is that a formative years kind of idea? Definitely. I think that's a great insight. Um, and I, I was actually speaking to another radio station. That was a youth radio station. Um, and I also a high school teacher reached out to me asking for the, this research, the paper. And I thought that these were both great kind of uh, audiences to speak to, because like you say, in your teenage years, you're, going through a lot of change, a lot of development. And the two things that this research kind of just closes in on or converges on would be your attachment style, uh, as well as your music tastes. Attachment style, there's some research saying that the first important relationship, significant relationship that people have in their lives, which romantic relationship, which is I, for most people, I'd say between the ages of 12 and 17, they'll have a significant romantic relationship that that, that can have a very significant impact on their eventual attachment style. Does it work the other way as well, right? I saw that, uh, you know, for example, Adele ranks high on the uh, people who have an anxious attachment style, and her music reflects that and mirrors that in a lot of ways. 
So if you have a lot of Adele on your playlist, if those are the songs that resonate with you, that you go back to over and over again, you are more likely to have an anxious attachment style in your relationship. Does that mean that somebody who has that anxious attachment style that developed maybe when they were 14 years old, and now they hear Adele that they are more likely to gravitate toward her music, right? Does it work the other way as well? That's what I, maybe I'm misunderstanding, but yeah, that is what we're saying that people have their attachment style. And then from kind of the whole world of music, that one reason they'll turn to certain artists and certain songs is because that music, that song will resonate with their attachment style. Okay. I guess, yes, you're right. I guess what I'm asking is, is, is the opposite. And I phrased it very poorly, but so let's say I have a lot of Adele albums. I play them a lot in my house and my 13 year old grows up listening to those day in and day out. Might they then develop uh, an anxious attachment style because they've been listening to so much Adele or uh, is it more likely they'll develop it from me because I also have that style? Gotcha. I would, so I can only speculate because uh, I don't have that research or research to kind of, that goes that far, that would be an amazing study to do. I would speculate that other things in your life are going to have a bigger impact on your attachment style than the music you listen to, such as, you know, your parenting that you receive, the, your peers around you, your social environment. I think if I, again, if I had to just guess what the data we have right now, I would say that music can help to, or can exacerbate whatever you're going through in the moment. So, if an individual has an attach anxious attachment style for other reasons, and then they listen to Adele's someone like you or Adele's hello, I think that'll just worsen things in the moment for them because it's going to be describing what they're going through, their anxious attachment and very powerful poignant lyrics with very sad music going on. So that's where I think the bounds would be. One way that I could think of as music really having such a deep impact on your identity, as you were describing, where the music you listen to then turns around and changes who you are or forms who you are, would be through the help of social groups, because people will, especially in their teenage and young adult years, um, get closer to other people who share their music tastes. They kind of just gravitate towards each other. Um, and then through that kind of feedback loop of you're meeting people who are similar to you, and you're all liking music that let's say, gravitates towards anxious attachment or gravitates towards avoidant attachment, then I feel like that could push you towards an attachment style, if that makes sense. I don't know if that was too convoluted. <laughs> no, no, that, that does make perfect sense. I'm remembering in my teenage years where we would have listening parties with a group of friends for the latest Radiohead release or whatever it might be, right? And, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I'm not sure we all ended up being uh, so similar in our attachment styles, but it strikes me upon reflection that maybe we were, in fact, uh, and we still are today. Uh, <laughs> now, what got you into this? What got you thinking about this uh, as a field of study, as something that you wanted to tackle? Is it just a love of music? Like, I mean, uh, and I told you in the pre just before we came on here. I love doing episodes where we talk about music because I love talking music. I've been into music my whole life. Mm -hmm. The only issue is I can't play any of it on the podcast because it's all licensed and very expensive. Uh, you know what I mean? Like yeah, I would yeah. love to be able to like play some Adele throughout this, or I think the weekend is very uh, avoidant attachment style. So, you know, we'll, we could play some of that, but we're not going to do it. And I'm not going to sing any of it because I don't want people turning off the podcast. But what, what got you into it in the first place? Is is it a, just a love of music? I'm presuming that's I, part of it. Yeah, I think there's multiple reasons, but love of music would be 
very, very high on the list. Music has always had a very important uh, impact on myself. And I do turn to music when, you know, I need something to promote my mood or, you know, if I'm going through something tough, music can really speak to me in that way. So yeah, it started with a love of music. Um, and then that led to me when I started my PhD, looking into the research that had already been done on music psychology. And what I found was that while there was a really growing field of uh, looking into why people like music from a psychological perspective, almost nobody was talking about lyrics. Uh, and when they did, it was almost downplayed, like lyrics don't really matter. That was kind of the line that I kept seeing in the research articles. And I found that to be quite astonishing for it to just be hand waved away like that. And I could think of just anecdotes in my own personal life and also looking around at other people I know, or even looking at Western culture. And I can get into that later if you want, where lyrics have really been important to people. So I wanted to look at that. I, I got interested in looking at the role that lyrics play in people's music preferences. And then the second thing was I had just stumbled upon research that was saying how since humans started making music, you go back tens of thousands of years, um, or go back to ancient Egyptians in 2000 BCE. It doesn't matter. You go to South Korea right now with their K-pop songs, or right. you, know, you look at Western Billboard top songs right now. It doesn't matter where you go. It doesn't matter when you go back and look at it. Music has always been about love and breakups and you know getting close to someone or pushing someone away. It's always been about relationships. And so I thought, how could it always be about relationships on the vast, vast majority of music since we started inventing music? I thought that that's a pretty significant thing, you know, for that to be right. the primary theme in music. There, I was, you know, I speculated that maybe there's something there. Maybe we write music about our love and our relationships for an important reason because it resonates with us. No, for sure. That that makes great sense. And I think I don't know. Maybe I've always been a lot more conscious than others that lyrics do matter to me, right? I mean, Bob Dylan was my first love mm -hmm. in early years, and you know, to this day, I'll still put on "Shelter from the Storm" a million yeah. times, in, you know, in a year, and "Desolation Row" and that, right? Uh, and so, yeah, talk to me a little bit then about the way people think about lyrics, right? I mean, why hasn't that been studied up until now? Why has that been sort of a secondary thing? Uh, I presume that they focus more on, you know, is this in a minor key or a major key? And how does that make me feel? Beats per minute, that kind of thing. Uh, the psychology that goes into the music that you hear when you go to the grocery store, like what's going to keep me in the store the longest and, you know, what BPM is going to keep me there and all that kind of stuff, right? Like I presume a lot of the psychology uh, studies up until this point have been around things like that. So why have lyrics been ignored for the most part? That's a great question. I frankly... I'm not sure. I think that a lot, I mean, again, if I have to speculate, I think a lot of it is based off of just an instinctive feeling that people have, which is that lyrics don't matter. And I say that because that is a pretty common reaction I get to this research when, um, I, you know, other people ask me about it, or uh, even when I was presenting this work uh, at various psychological conference, conferences or departments, there is, I always expected that there was going to be one or two people who would put their hand up and say, but I don't even know the lyrics of my favorite songs, or I don't even listen to the lyrics of my favorite songs. So I think that there's just this hunch that people have that lyrics don't matter, and it kind of seeped into the psychological research where we had that same intuition, unfortunately, uh, and they just ignored it. Um, it, it. I mean, I do agree that the sound is very prominent in a song, and I do agree that maybe the first time you listen to a song, the, the sound is really going to make a big impact on whether you know that's a song you like or you don't like. I think that 
if you really think a little deep deeper about this, you will find that lyrics do matter, even to people who say, you know, lyrics don't matter at me to me at all. I think everybody has times in their life when lyrics do make an impact. And even in our culture, like I was saying, Bob Dylan, that you, who you brought up, is a fantastic example. Uh, in the 60s, he was making a lot of protest songs, as, as were other artists around him, the 50s and 60s. And those were very popular for that reason. You know, lots of people turned to that music because it expressed their social distress that they were going through at that time. And that has carried through uh, into the future, uh, or sorry, into, into modern times. Um, Eminem is another great example, I think, of protest songs. He, I remember when I was a teenager, he was making protest songs against Bush. And then if maybe five or four, three or five years ago, he made a protest song against Trump uh, on BET. Yeah. Um, more recently, the Iranian revolution going on, or if we call it a revolution, there's a very popular song going on there that's spread around the world. And it's the lyrics that are making a huge impact. A lot of people are brought to tears even when they just read the translation of those lyrics. So... I'm rambling here, but to answer your question, I think it's because we have this instinct that lyrics don't matter, um, but I'm happy to respond to that and to provide tons of evidence that lyrics do matter, both from an anecdotal perspective and as well as from a research perspective. Well, and you said that that rap fans tend to be the ones who you know respond best to your survey because they might be the ones who really care about the lyrics that they're listening to more so than others, right? And I think maybe that's because in a rap song, the lyrics are the hook in a lot of ways, right? You know, most songs draw you in because they got a really great hook or they've got a really great, uh, you know, melody. But in a rap song, the rapper has to create that hook vocally. And so you're, the two things are not, they're not separated in your brain, I guess, uh, if that makes sense. Definitely. I mean, I mean, I think rap is a great genre and, and it's really fun to speak to rap fans about this because they really get it. Um, and, you know, like you say, I mean, rap lyrics are so important and some of the best, at least from my experience, and I'm a rap fan as well. The top rappers are the ones who produce the best lyrics. At least that's a very prominent, maybe best flow as well, uh, maybe longevity as well, but also best lyrics. Um, so, like, why do we respect Kendrick Lamar so much? Because his lyrics are so poignant, for example, and because they're so socially relevant to what, you know, uh, inner city, uh, usually black kids are going through, at least from my experience of listening to Kendrick Lamar's music. And then on the flip side, you know, when you look at rap artists who don't really seem to put that much effort into their lyrics, they're really, really criticized uh, amongst rap fans and like that mumble rap movement that right. was going on, right? <laughs> Why do we hate that so much? Because they're mumbling and because their lyrics are pretty lazy to be honest with you right so, so now, see sure I, I always thought that i hated that because i'm becoming an old man and uh becoming <laughs> my parents and like oh you kids with your new nonsense and i hate this so much right um but maybe that's why it's that's good <laughs> yeah, yeah. sorry folk is also very good for its lyrics like to speak to fans of folk music um or indie music because i think they also really care and bob dylan more on the folk side would be like one prominent example of that yeah, for sure. And that's why there are the Woody Guthrie's and Pete Seeger's of the world still have some staying power to this day, right? They still get played, even on my Spotify. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, Spotify called me a unicorn or something like that because of it. Or maybe a marshmallow. I can't remember. They did <laughs> some weird thing. But uh, so I'm thinking that it, it might actually be easier for you to study lyrics because you can just pull up the lyrics to the songs people say that they love, right? You don't have to go through and figure out, okay, 
you know, is this song at this many beats per minute? Is it in a minor key? Do they do a key change somewhere in the middle, right? That kind of thing. You, you just look straight up at the lyrics and decide whether or not they represent one attachment style or another. What does that process look like? From my understanding, you surveyed a ton of people and they all just sent you in their 10 or 12 favorite songs that they go back to over and over. And then you took a look at those songs and compared them with that person in some way. Is that about accurate? Yeah, I'd say that's a good summary. Um, it was a lot of work. We surveyed about 570 people uh, across two studies, and our third study was different. That was about Western culture. So across two studies, 570 people, and we collected over 7,000, nearly 8,000 songs. And that was from, like you said, each participant telling us their favorite songs, seven to 15 favorite songs. And then we just looked at the lyrics of those songs. Uh, well, actually not not myself. I mean, I, I trained coders, research assistants at the University of Toronto, undergraduate students, essentially. I trained them to use a scale of attachment style to rate the song's lyrics. So uh, it, the scale was the same scale that someone would fill out by themselves if they wanted to rate their own attachment. It would be questions like, you know, I push people away um, or, you know, I, I don't trust people in relationships, questions like that. But instead of answering those questions about a sp specific individual, the coders would be answering those questions about the song lyrics. So they'd say the person who is the main character in the song, according to lyrics, would, for example, push people away or would not want to get close to people, things like that. They'd rate the song. And so, yeah, it was about two or three human coders per song to really make sure it was reliable. And they rated all... 8,000 songs in terms of their attachment style. So now we have this huge database of songs and, and what attachment style they're expressing. <laughs> and are you going to break those into playlists? Like, <laughs> I, I, I'm picturing, you know, when you would burn a CD for the girl you liked back in high school, and, <laughs> you know, I'm going to put all the avoidance uh, songs on that particular CD or something, right? Like, you know, are, are, are you doing anything further with those this massive database that you've constructed? I would love to. Uh, it's a very, like you say, massive database, and it's going to be hard to sift through. But eventually, I would like to have just a kind of like playlist, you can say, where it's easy to find. Like you just search artist and you search song and you get a score, the attachment style of that song. That'd be really fun to, to create. Yeah, that would be pretty neat. I, I, w I would like that a lot. <laughs> just an, an additional thing to throw up there. Uh, yeah. So does this change the way that you look at things, right? Like I remember, you know, when I first started dating or got into college, like one of the things you do when you go to somebody's house for the first time is you look at that CD collection. You look at the, or maybe this is just me, but I would go and I would look at, you know, okay, what CDs do you have out here? And then I would judge you based on that. Yeah. Not in this way. I wouldn't know about attachment styles or anything at the time. I would just know that, okay, your first two CDs are Savage Garden and Nickelback. I don't think this is going to work out. I, I, I'm going to, you know, but, but, uh, you know, does this change the way you approach things uh, with people? Like when you find out somebody's favorite song, do you think in your, the back of your mind, oh, now I, now I see your relationship style? I, I think um, for me, what it's made an impact most is on how I listen to music and when I listen to certain songs. If I'm going through a tough time, let's say, then I won't turn to music that I think has anxious or avoidant lyrics because I think that'll only exacerbate things. Only, I think it'll only make things worse. And I try to listen to music with positive lyrics or optimistic lyrics uh, to push me towards feeling good again, basically. That would be the biggest impact. Am I judging other people based off 
the attachment style in their songs. I just take it as a clue. Uh, I'm not going to jump as far as to say, you know, oh, now I figured you out based off your five favorite songs or what you played in the car or whatever it may be. But I do take it as a clue. And then I look for more evidence, just like anything in life. I think, you know, everything's just another bit of information. Yeah, I expect so. What are some of your favorite artists? What, what do you listen to on the regular? And when you want to find something that's not anxious or avoided, yeah. what kind of music is that? My favorite music would be, be um, hip hop and uh, electronic music, I would say. So I like The Weeknd. Um, I like Eminem. I like Calvin Harris. I like, there's this guy called Mahmoud Orhen. Uh, not really th- on YouTube, he keeps coming up. He's fantastic electronic music that he kind of blends with uh, more ethnic sounds. So it's very interesting. I've been listening to Sophie Tucker, who's also an electronic dance music duo recently. Yeah, I don't know. I'd say I have a pretty kind of wide range within those two genres of artists that I like. When I don't want to listen to something to put me down, I'll just put on instrumental music, um, basically, because it has no lyrics. So I just avoid lyrics entirely. Right. <laughs> uh, and, it, and it helps me It helps me to get back into my groove. Yeah, I suppose that this wouldn't, this study wouldn't really extend to the music of Beethoven and oh, Mozart yeah. and uh, the classic composers, right? I, I don't know if Berlioz is uh, telling me anything about my attachment style, right? <laughs> it makes me wonder though, right? Like we all have music that we turn to uh, on a regular basis. And it, yeah, it definitely depends on our mood. But I think a lot of the time people do want to f- wallow almost in a sad mm-hmm. mood for a little while and they will put on sad music. Uh, would you say that's detrimental, that that might actually be harmful to, you know, sort of increase that sadness spiral, uh, at, even for three and a half minutes at a time? Um, I I would love to do this study. Um, my, my idea for a next study would be to see how people react to anxious versus avoidant versus secure music after a very difficult time, such as a breakup, bringing in, you know, individuals who've just gone through a breakup and putting on Adele, for example, versus putting on some really positive song and seeing how they react. My speculation is that it's good to be validated for a brief period of time, such as, you know, listening to Adele's Someone Like You after you, know, you get broken up. But I do think that if you keep doing that, it's going to exacerbate and make things worse. Uh, It'll put you into a rumination. So to make it short, I think validation is good. I think it's good to have someone mirror back what you're going through to you through music. But I don't think rumination is good. Uh, And my concern would be that especially anxiously attached people have a tendency to ruminate. They just keep going over the same thing. And if you keep running in the same spot, you're not going to get anywhere. So I'd want them to kind of break through that cycle at some point and listen to music that has more positive, uh, more productive themes. There's got to be so much more that we haven't really delved into in this field, right? Especially with the lyrics of songs that appeal to people in one way or another. There must be much more than just attachment style that we might be able to discern uh, over the course of many more studies are those the kind of things that you might want to look into so i've completely changed course okay <laughs> i'm in a, i'm doing medicine now uh, so i'm practicing as a physician now if i were still in the field yeah i would love to i do think i want to suggest to my co-authors who are still psychology professors to potentially do this one study that i just spoke about things other than attachment style 
I, I think that the first place to start would be the big five personality traits. I'm not sure if uh, your listeners might be aware. Or, I don't I, know what kind of audience you have, to be honest. Well, a lot of them are psychologists, so they would be familiar with the big five traits. But I think 86% are regular people who just enjoy learning about science. So for the most part, uh, people wouldn't be familiar with them. So hit us with the five big five personality traits. <laughs> Sure, sure. So thanks for letting me know. So yeah, big five would just be the broad traits that describe people's personality. Um, so how extroverted someone is, how agreeable versus disagreeable someone is, how open someone is, how uh, conscientious someone is, um, and how emotionally stable someone is. Those are the five broad personality traits. And looking at how those relate to lyrics, I think would be important. There was actually a study a few years ago that showed that Using, I think it was Spotify, um, people's Spotify playlists, they found that lyrics had more of an impact, or sorry, lyrics had were had more of a predictive role compared to the sound of music and predicting people's identity. So the lyrics of people's songs are more important in telling us what kind of people those individuals are compared to the sound of their favorite songs. On as as found, I think it was through Spotify because I know they had this millions and millions of songs through many hundreds of thousands of participants that they analyzed to find this. So I think personality traits would be the next one. Beyond that, I, I do think we should continue with attachment style though, because like I said very early earlier on in this interview, music has always been about relationships, whether it's getting into one or breaking up with, one, with someone or maintaining your relationship. So I think that that is a very, very foundational role that music can play in terms of resonating with us in terms of our relational experiences. And I think I read in an article that discussed this uh, a couple of weeks ago that songs from sort of pre-1990 or pre-1996 or something were much easier to categorize in terms of, you know, anxious attachment style, avoidant attachment style, and that today's music is a little more difficult because a lot of it is departing in a way from that central idea that, that used to be completely pervasive in music uh was that something you said is that something you've noticed or is that something that they just added into that article uh as a personal opinion that may not have anything to do with the study i think that's something they added uh looking at how this research has evolved um, through articles that different kind of media outlets are releasing i'm finding that they're slowly deviating from what we were saying in the article as it happens <laughs> in media it's kind of been like a broken telephone kind of issue we, but we did do a, um, a a study on how music has changed over time. So that maybe they just misrepresented that study. What we found was that from 1946 to 2015, if you look at the top Billboard songs, and we started in 1946 because that's just when Billboard started. Right. So from 1946 to 2015, if you look at the top songs, which in this case would be Western culture, the most popular songs, um, music has become in its lyrics more avoidant and less secure over time. It hasn't changed in its anxiety, okay. but more avoidant and less secure. So I think that that's what they're speaking towards. So if you go back to the 40s, 50s, 60s, maybe 70s, finding secure music was very easy. But if you look at music nowadays, finding a secure song is quite tough, purely secure song, whereas finding an avoidant or anxious song these days, or sorry, finding an avoidant or an avoidant anxious, like a mixed attachment style song would be a lot easier these days 
That makes sense. And I'm thinking like 1946, the top songs on Billboard were like, how much is that doggy in the window? And yeah, yeah. <laughs> Woogie Bugle Boy or something, right? Like, you know, not necessarily songs about relationships at all, except for the relationship that she wanted to have with the dog that she saw in the pet store window. <laughs> now, does that count? Does that count if they're talking about, I really want that dog uh, and to adopt it? Uh, I think that would maybe be borderline, um, but we did we did make sure to exclude songs that were not about relationships. So it wasn't as if music back then was just more positive uh, or just even more neutral, and now it's become more negative. We made sure to exclude those songs and to look at it when it's songs that are specifically about a relationship with someone else. And still, we find that that association where or that trend over time where music has become more avoided and less secure. There was a time that fascinates me in music history, and I'm sure that this has nothing to do with your study, but late 50s into the early 60s, there was a real movement in music where the pop songs were devastatingly sad, where it was always about two young lovers who, you know, really got on together and then one of them dies in a car accident or they get eaten by a shark or, you know, like they get cancer and every, and like there was a huge movement toward those yeah, songs. Yeah. Those were the most popular songs in that era. And uh, I'm just, I don't even know if that speaks to an attachment style. It's just really fatalistic and awful. I, it, they're hard to listen to, I think, for today's audience anyway. I would say that would be more anxious. Um, and yeah, you do have some very strongly anxious music from the 40s, 50s, and 60s. Um, I think, like I was saying, the most striking thing is avoidance songs are hard to find, whereas nowadays it's very easy to find avoidance songs. So to kind of gloss over it in a very simple way, I'd say music back then used to be, if, if you wanted, if you just picked a song at random, it'd either be very secure or very anxious. Whereas nowadays you're going to find, if you just pick a song at random, Secure is going to be tough to find. You'll find a very prominently avoidant song or maybe a song that's both anxious and avoidant. Excellent. Okay. Well, thank you for taking the time to speak with me. I'm now going to go through my wife's Spotify and uh, try to figure <laughs> out if I can determine her attachment style based on that. <laughs> and in my entirely unscientific and uh, unproven way, that's good. Well, thank you so much, and uh, I appreciate uh, you taking the time to speak with me today. This is really interesting, and uh, I hope that more comes of it. Oh, yeah, thanks so much. I really enjoyed it. It was nice to speak to a true music fan and, and, and to kind of be on the same wavelength there. Yeah, I only wish I could play some of that music on our podcast here. I would uh, play you out with Stone Roses. Stone Roses were my number one band, I guess, on Spotify for the whole uh, thing. You know, they like to tell me what I like. So <laughs> awesome. Awesome. I will uh, I'll put it I'll put a link in the show notes. Like once you're done here, go to YouTube and listen to She Bangs the Drums. And uh, that would be great. <laughs> I'll be listening to that now. Lyrics matter. That's the takeaway I have here that as much as some of us think they're not having an impact on us, they are. Thanks to Dr. Ravan Alai for joining me today and giving me an excuse to talk music here on Mindful. Now, we mentioned a lot of songs in this episode, but of course, we can't play them here on a podcast because we don't have the money for that. So I've put links in the show notes not only to the study Dr. Alai did with his colleagues, but also to some of the songs and artists we mentioned. 
Thanks for listening, streaming, and downloading this episode. And remember, you can subscribe to Mindful wherever you get your podcasts. Our editor and producer is Jamie Montgomery. This episode was written, hosted, and published by me, Eric Bullman. Our theme music, which we get to use for free because he was kind enough to donate it to us, is Avenues by David Taylor. See you in two weeks.